Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. So today is a Katina article, or one that you've read at least. Can you tell us a little tidbit about it before we get started? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about distress organizing, which is a fancy term for uh, what happens when people work in jobs that are particularly upsetting or the context is particularly overwhelming with from an emotional standpoint. And we're going to talk about what people, um, how people react to those as a qualitative study. Uh, so a little bit different from some of the studies that we usually talk about because it's based on observations and interviews. Um, but we're going to talk about what are some of the pitfalls that people get into when they're in these kinds of jobs and then what people can do to kind of get out of those. Okay. Well, if that feels really relevant, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are going through stress, distress in jobs right now. Yes. Um, obviously in and out of jobs too, depending on your situation. So feels very relevant to this time. Yeah. That's why I was kind of attracted to the topic because I felt like it was, um, you know, particularly relevant to a lot of people who are like on the front lines right now and, uh, you know, trying to fight the crisis that's going on. But also, I think that there are some good things that uh, people can take away that um, do not, you know, directly apply to this, but maybe have been overlooked in past um, periods of time because this kind of situation hasn't been so like front and center. People haven't been thinking about it as much. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's broadly applicable, but also particularly applicable at this time period. Interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. How are you doing right now? I am doing fine. Um, it is uh, right now as we're recording, it's almost the weekend. So I'm looking forward to actually starting to pack up some stuff. We got all of our boxes in the mail. It's Yay like, for the move. I know for the move. So it's so weird to get like a delivery of boxes. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is this? It's a bunch of boxes. Like how exciting. <laughs> um, but it actually, um, I am really excited to like get going. We keep like stopping by the house every few days to see, you know, just measure things and just check in, make sure like everything's okay there. And I think we'll be really happy to like be settled in or like get, get actually there. So we're moving in yeah. that direction, which is good. That'll be great. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped about it, too. It is such a weird time to be moving because it's like I'm so excited to move. But then like one of the reasons why we were excited to live in this place is because we want to be able to like walk to like the cute town and like all this stuff. And now we're like, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's open. Yeah. I'm so. like, oh, man, like we could really be moving anywhere right now. And our experience would be pretty much the same. <laughs> well, it'll just make it that much more exciting when all the stay at home orders are lifted. That's true. That's very, very true. Um, <laughs> I completely agree. How are you guys doing? Good. We're good. Um, so yeah, weekend's almost here. We are doing a happy hour, Zoom happy hour with friends, which we've talked about that so many times, but it's a different group of friends that we haven't done one with yet um, during this time. So that should be fun. Uh, it is kind of funny to like see the the waves of who's, um, like who's available, who's thinking about doing happy hours with each other. It's like, it's been going in interesting spurts. I don't know why. I don't know why I find it interesting, but I do. Yeah. Like, these people are really good friends of ours too, but for whatever reason, we never really thought about doing a happy hour 
yeah. with this group, but they all live kind of like what you were saying with your college friends all live far away. Like they all live far away. And so we're used to not seeing each other as much, I think. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why. Yeah. But it should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that it is it is nice to connect. Um and especially if it's folks that you haven't seen in a while that you normally would see, it's like you wanna make sure that you're, you know, still everybody's doing okay and you're still connecting not like losing touch and also if it's like people who you know you usually don't talk to even outside of or don't have as much contact with outside of this it's also nice to be like oh this is a reason for us to realize like we could be connecting yeah definitely so I think it'll be good um but other than that like this weekend we don't have any crazy plans as you can imagine yeah so we'll see I'm sure we'll find something to do um danny really wants to play risk which i've never played before what is that it's some board game oh that's all that's literally all i know that's the extent of my knowledge um i don't know anything about it but i don't know i'm sure it'll be fun and then we actually (laughs) um, i guess so (laughs) we'll see um i'm sure other people know what risk is and maybe it is fun i don't know but we'll see um we, uh, I'm going to tell you something silly. So I bought this game and it is the most absurd game in the world, but I just really wanted to buy it because I like think it's funny. It's called Throw Throw Burrito. What? Oh. And I don't know anything. I haven't played it yet. We just opened the box because there's like these two like squishy. They're almost like um like those stress balls, but like but looks like a burrito and there's two of them and I don't know there's like cards and like you play something and then you could throw burritos at each other and I'm like I really wanted to throw a burrito and so I bought the game (laughs) (laughs) so you throw the burrito like what so what are the rules is it it, it's not like hot potato or you don't know I have no idea. I haven't read the rules. All I know is that the only thing I've seen was that you cannot throw both burritos at once. So, and you can't have both burritos in your hands. So like not, so like I can't have a burrito and, um, and then catch one and then keep both of them. And I don't know what else, but it can be two player games. So like I basically get to throw burritos at Danny and (laughs) it'll be pretty fun. (laughs) So you bought a game that allows you to throw things at your husband. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. Uh, that's so funny. Um, yeah. So uh, how does he feel about this? Um, well, he opened the box and was ups- immediately obsessed with the weird burritos. He says that they f- they feel fun. And I was like, I don't know what that means exactly. But they they do like kind of have like a... Like, they feel like those stress balls. You just, like, kind of want to squish it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. I think it'll be an adventure. We'll see. We'll see if we uh, <laughs> if we don't break things with these burritos <laughs> throwing them around the house. I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, my man. gosh. We also played, like, a few weeks ago, we played, uh, he's going to be so upset. I'm not going to do it justice. But a game that he and his friends made up when they were in college, and it's called Couch Volleyball. Mm-hmm. and you like stack up stuff in between you and you have to both sit on the couch and then you have to like basically play volleyball with a beach ball um and you're but you're not allowed to like stand up like you have to keep your butt on the seat on the couch <laughs> so it's like a, a very stupid game it's like such a bro like college game for sure um it sounds fun though it is fun we he made me play it once so we might play that again because i feel like we don't really have much going on this weekend so Maybe it's going to be a couch volleyball and 
throwing burrito weekend. Wow. I like how Danny's game that he picked is Risk, which sounds somewhat (laughs) more, I don't know, (laughs) substantial than a throwing burrito game. (laughs) Yeah, well, I picked the less intelligent game for sure. (laughs) I mean, I actually like during time periods like this, I often um, like will select activities or TV shows or things that, like, just require no, like, nothing thoughtful at all. Like, Mm -hmm. I often will pick things that are just completely, like, out of the realm of having to have any cognition whatsoever. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Because I think also like he's not working as much right now. And I'm working a lot still. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it too. It's like I feel like I've been working more. And I think that's partially because you and I have been doing some worker being stuff that maybe we ramped up some things maybe that we hadn't uh, thought about before all this happened. Um, But I feel like I want to do something silly and like not have to think mm-hmm. and he's I think on the other end of the spectrum where he's like happy to think about things and I'm just like well I'm gonna throw a burrito at you instead <laughs> so <there> you go. <laughs> every time you try to think I'm throwing a burrito at your head <laughs> yep <laughs> oh my gosh that's really funny yeah I mean I, I've been noticing that too like Brendan really wanted to watch The Witcher mm-hmm. and like I I honestly don't know if The Witcher under any circumstance like is something that I would choose to watch. I really don't know what it's about. Like, I don't know. Dragons something. I don't I don't know if it's really about dragons. Um, but it's like <laughs> something like, you know, I like Game of Thrones. That's like the only dragon show I ever liked. But like, I don't like anything that occurs like in a world that doesn't belong to me. Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't Harry like Harry Potter. Harry Potter's the only time thing. you say I that. I know. Harry Potter is <laughs> literally the only thing that I like that is not in my world. And I think that that's because it's non- if it makes if this makes sense, they're still like kids and I can still like it's a simple enough story that I can still be like, oh, OK. But like when it's complicated and it's also not in my world and I have to pay a lot of attention to like follow what's happening and I'm trying to make sense of stuff on top of making sense of stuff. I'm just like, ah, this is like I'm not into this. And also, like, I think the characters in Harry Potter were like really good. I mean, maybe they are in other things, too. I don't know. But like I just don't have like an interest in or I'm not att- generally attracted to things like that. So he really wanted to watch it. And like for days, he's just been like, we should watch The Witcher. We should watch The Witcher. And I'm like, I cannot watch The Witcher. And I'm like, I'll watch like World's Most Extraordinary Homes. I'll watch a (laughs) a cooking championship. Like I'll watch anything that I can just like literally like stare at at and like not need to care about at all. Um, But I... He watched The Witcher alone because he realized I was never, <laughs> I was That's never funny. going to come around on that. Yeah, I feel you there too. I feel like I'm always like, let's watch something light. And he's like, let's watch Westworld. And I'm like, well, like, I like that show, but that's not very light. And I really right. want it to be light right now. So yes. next guess. And then there'll be something else that's really heavy. And I'm like, uh, let's yes. just watch Parks and Rec again or something. Yeah, I, know. I know. I actually really need to watch more Parks and Rec. Because I always want to watch it, but I haven't. I don't know. I just feel like now I'm like, 
Or funny things. Like, I'll watch that. Mm-hmm. Or funny things I also like. But, like, we're out of funny things. And Brendan won't let me buy the last um, season of Shit's Creek. He says we have to wait for it to come uh, out. I'm going to buy it when he's not looking, and then I'll be like, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> you should. I need, to, I need to watch that, too. But I'm telling you, I was telling you before we started recording, happy endings. You should watch yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I really it's will really watch good. it. I know. It's I very liked it funny. when you showed it to me. It's funny. It's light. And you don't have to think too much. Yeah. That makes so. sense. That makes sense. I like funny and light. And that is the opposite of the article that I'm going to be talking about today. (laughs) Oh, boy. So tell us. Tell us about this article. Yes. Okay. So this article is by Bill Kahn and, well, William Kahn. I'm calling him Bill because I've, like, been on symposiums and stuff with him before. And it's called Dynamics and Implications of Distress Organizing. And it was published in the Academy Management Journal in 2019. Um, and basically, this article, um, like I mentioned, so I guess it, it's worth mentioning that um, this article follows a little bit of a different methodology than a lot of the articles that we um, review because it's not um, quantitative data. So it's based on three years of observations that um, he had at a child welfare agency, so like a social services agency that um, helped to care and protect children who are in uh, basically uh, foster care and they work to like reunify families and facilitate adoptions and keep in touch with families that have adopted children or they uh, find children that uh, are in unsafe situations and take them out of those situations and place them in foster care. And so it's a very emotional job um, Mm -hmm. that these individuals have. And so he collected data for three years, like documenting all kinds of stuff, group meetings and um, all kinds of documents from the organization. And he looked at like uh, website materials and newspaper articles and all the information that he could find in the public domain. Um, And he sat in the office and watched how things unfolded. And then he also interviewed 85 members of the agency um, over the course of that period of time, asking them all different kinds of questions about um, their experiences and uh, specifically asking about what are things that happened that were distressing to them and their reactions to those distressing things. And then he tried to come up with um, sort of a model for how people react to and what are the general ways that people handle these distressing situations, and then what are the outcomes that are associated with those distressing situations that we could kind of learn from. Interesting. Okay. I mean, wow. It sounds like he's really got in there very deep and understanding everything going on. So that's really cool. Yes. Sounds like an interesting methodology for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So what what did they find? Like, what did he... What did he experience and see that was worth noting and that we can learn from? Yes. So um, basically, the article um, highlights that when individuals are in these really distressing circumstances, it and they're in these distressing circumstances that sort of have a constant um, level of distress. So I think like some... Um, some ways that or some other context that this might apply would be like in hospital settings or healthcare related settings um, or in nonprofit settings where you're dealing with clients um, or if you're running 
um, like a homeless shelter or, um, you know, people who are working in conditions where there's sort of this chronic emotional burden that goes on where they're like routinely exposed to painful things that um, what actually ends up happening is that people develop and sort of um, reinforce defense mechanisms that cause them to sort of like collectively try to avoid experiencing distress. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is that people think that these distressing experiences, because they do feel so negative, that they want to avoid even engaging with them. So instead of acknowledging them and trying to grapple with them head on, they try to sort of put up barriers and walls to push themselves further away from the distress. And so their way of sort of coping with it is by creating this like disengagement with what's going on that's distressing and Mm. removing themselves from it, which sort of creates like a culture basically where people don't recognize the severity of what they're dealing with from a psychological perspective. Um, And so they're sort of uh, creating these like actions or behaviors as a group that allow them to create this wall between themselves and what's going on and also between each other and how each other are feeling um, in those circumstances as a way to sort of protect themselves from those emotions. Um, But what he found was that while it seemed logical to them that if they were going to cope with this ongoing stress and distress by creating these walls between themselves and their clients or themselves and their coworkers who were experiencing something painful, that actually ended up amplifying um, the distress that they were experiencing. Um, so it it doesn't end up being a good way of coping um, to sort of remove yourself and say, you know, this is work and this is what I need to do to get my job done, but I'm not going to let myself get sucked into the emotions of the situation. Over time, the avoidance of that distressing emotion actually makes things worse that's super interesting and i'm I'm just kind of thinking through it all um i mean it makes sense to me at the same time right Mm -hmm. like you think about if you avoid dealing with like grief you can imagine the types of impacts that has on people right people talk about that stuff all the time like you have to cope with it you have to deal with it to be able to move past it so if you're just avoiding it constantly and it's constantly coming at you at some point your wall is not strong enough to keep it out I guess yeah yeah and and interestingly enough what they found what he found in this study was that um while people sort of purported that they felt that this was self-protective um that it protected like their I can still have like thoughts and feelings and actions that are my own and I'm not just like totally sucked into what's going on around me that it was sort of unconscious that they were all sort of also um, ignoring each other's emotional needs. So it was like this individual focus on I'm going to protect myself also led to like almost this like callousness towards others um, where people were like unwilling to engage in emotional conversations or like acknowledge or give credit to other people's painful experiences because it was like, well, if they're going to get sucked into that, that's fine. Or if I perceive them as getting sucked into that, that's fine. But like, I'm not going to let myself get sucked in because that's going to be unhealthy for me. Um, 
And so it ended up basically creating this like culture within the organization where people were very disengaged with each other and they were very dispassionate. Like there was this narrative of like, you know, everybody has a job and our job happens to be upsetting, but that doesn't mean that it's not a job and that we can't just like come in and sort of get things done almost like in a more robotic fashion, right? Um, Wow. That they sort of felt like the only way, the way that they had created this culture was like, the only way for us to get this done is to operate in a very dispassionate way or else we're going to get so sucked into this that we'll lose all sense of like our sanity, basically. Um, So that was sort of the culture that was being... um, produced. And um, in the article, they talk about some different ways that that showed up within the organization. So um, there were these like avoidance mechanisms of like avoiding um, time or space for people in the organization to actually examine or experience the emotions. And then there were also these interpersonal avoidance patterns where when other people were going through or or visibly going through a hard time, people were getting out of their way instead of approaching them. Um, And so there was like this general sense, like I'm saying that these emotions were not going to be recognized even when they were right in front of people. And so he talks about these like three kind of, or these like few ways that people um, sort of uh, reinforce that. And one way was this like, what he's calling an intent task focus. So like people just talking about like, I've got a lot to do. I have a lot to think about. I have a pile of paperwork that I need to do. And amidst these circumstances, if I don't get this done, it's going to be late. It's going to look bad for our agency. And so I just don't have time to deal with the emotions that I'm feeling. So if we want to continue being successful in this organization and actually get things done, we need to prioritize tasks over emotions because otherwise we're going to fall behind. So that was one narrative that helped to sort of reinforce this idea was like a time-based narrative. That is sad. I'm sorry. Everything you're saying is making me really upset too. I'm feeling distressed in this distress article. (laughs) Um, Yes. Because that just sounds so miserable. I mean, people are not supporting each other. People are not talking about it. Everyone's just avoiding it. And then I feel like these are the types of things that lead to like agencies like this one having issues where they're not catching problems and things that are more negative because everything's been kind of diluted almost with this weird approach to it that's really sad yeah I'm sad to hear that this happened yeah and I think but I think that this is actually pretty normal in distressing yeah. situations that people um come to conclude that the only way that they can be productive is to be rational and not emotional and like this yeah. idea that emotions are like time sucks that you if you get emotional about something it's a distractor or it's keeping you from doing what you actually need to be doing which is getting your work done and not recognizing that potentially part of what's going to help you be effective in your work in an in an ongoing manner is that you have to acknowledge the it like the long game is that if you want to do this job for a long time you're going to have to create ways that you effectively cope with this instead of just like tabling it Right. 
Right. I mean, it makes me think of even just the concept of emotional labor, which we talked about before, where emotions are part of your job. And in this case, like, that's true. Maybe not showing them all the time is part of your job, but you're dealing with emotions, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not emotional labor in that same exact, well, it is, but it's not in the exact same way that I'm, I'm thinking about it. But it's more of the the idea that people are trying to separate the emotions from their job, but emotions are part of the job and that's okay. That happens. There's jobs where emotions are a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and in, in this uh, context, um, he was noticing, I mean, there are like horrible things that are written up in this article, like um, not to like make this more depressing than it needs to be, but um, he writes about um, how their meetings were like really short and, to the point, even when they like almost in an odd way, even when something really horrible was happening, it was like, what happened? Did you call this person? What resource did you engage? What do we need to do next? Like all the questions were very process focused, task focused, even when what they were dealing with was really horrible. So he tells this story about um, that a social worker uh, was having a having trouble with uh, this family who had had their kids taken away from them on multiple occasions. And um, during this occasion, when they went to um, check on the house, they found a newborn hidden behind a boiler in a basement. (gasps) And like, it was unclear how long the baby had been there for. Like the baby was like not being taken care of in any way. And in that meeting, they basically were just like, okay, so where did you find the baby? What did you do? What And like, so he kind of details how in the, even in these situations, nobody was taking time to recognize, like, like even saying like, that's so horrible. Like, I can't believe that happened. It was just like, our job is to address the situation and not get sucked mm-hmm. into the emotional aspect of it. Because if we do that every time, we'll end up, all we'll do is end up emoting. But then it created this strange culture where like, they never gave credence to it. Um, And so it was like, this is obviously a really dramatic, traumatic thing. And like, nobody's, nobody's even calling any attention to that. Um, Hmm. Yeah. And then he, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's like, well, to the point that you're making, like, you know, you're saying, oh, it's horrible. You can't believe that happened. Was the example you gave is something to say, but they probably can believe it happened. Right. So I think that there's something to be said there, too. It's like there's so much that they're seeing that the average person is not seeing all the time. Right. And um, and so even their typical response to it would be different than ours. But but ignoring it is not it's not going to help. Right. Like yeah. I just don't know what that response would be. It probably would be some sadness and it probably would be less extreme of a response than us just because over time people get desensitized and that's fair. That happens. That's fine. Um, but I think perpetuating this culture of where you're constantly hiding the, or ignoring the emotions, just putting it aside. That's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just in some of this like um, compassion circle uh, stuff that I've been doing with this hospital, like, I'm hearing some of this come up. And so I'm finding it really interesting because I think it's it's a you do get habituated to things and then they don't stand out as much. But then also it doesn't mean it's not impacting you. And you all and you mm-hmm. do feel like, well, I'm the person that has to put on the like brave face. Right. Like 
this is part of my job. So that was another thing that he um, highlighted was that they had these like narratives in the organization that helped them to justify these actions. So like one was like, our job is to save kids. And so our emotions don't matter. It doesn't matter how we feel. What matters is that we're doing our job and that we're giving the kids the highest priority. Um, And so it's not about us being upset. Like we took on this job knowing that there would be psychological costs. And so now we have these psychological costs and basically like, and there's nothing we can do about them. So there was sort of like this, Mm -hmm. like, this is what we signed up for, but not like thinking like, but is there a way that we could improve it? Right. Um, And then they also talked a lot about like being tough, that um, it takes a specific kind of person to do this job. And I'm that kind of person. Um, So almost this like persona of like, the reason that I got into this is because I'm a person who's able to handle this. And so these, this is me admitting that I'm having emotions about it makes, makes me run the risk to think maybe I picked the wrong job or the wrong profession. You know, like there's like this like mm. riskiness in recognizing that. Um, and then the third part is just being so busy um, and this idea that they are taking on a job that they know is, extremely hectic, extremely stressful. So they sort of are accepting instead of trying to approach the fact that like, this is a really stressful job and it's really highly emotional. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't give some credence to our emotions and that there may be, even for people who are really great at this job, sometimes where you need support. Yeah, that's, so I think it makes sense though. Everything that you've said in terms of what you know, the article has talked about like all those things as you're saying them, like nodding my head. Yeah, I could see that. I could see why people would be scared to confront it and think maybe this isn't the right fit for me. Maybe I picked the wrong profession. Maybe I picked the wrong career. Like I think about when I was picking my career and where I wanted to go when, you know, I was doing um, research studies with patients with chronic illnesses and late stage cancer and things like that. And it was really hard for me. And, you know, I wasn't able to remove the emotion piece and decided not to go into that field because of it. So I could totally see why wanting to avoid that emotion um, because you don't want to feel like, oh, maybe I have to change my career because maybe deep down you know this is the right thing, even if you're dealing with these problems mm-hmm. and issues and feeling this way. Yeah. Yeah. And I did the same thing. I thought that I was going to, uh, for a little while, I was thinking that maybe I would be a clinical psychologist. And then um, I decided that I didn't think that um, I would want to take on like that emotional burden all the time. Um, And so, you know, I made sort of a similar decision to like get myself out of the emotions realm. And then I ended up doing like a ton of research that's like really emotional (laughs) and like sometimes hard to (laughs) hard to get through. So it's kind of been an interesting an interesting journey from that perspective. But like, yeah, I I think that, you know, when you make that decision, and I think it's true for doctors and nurses too, it's like when you make that decision, there's almost part of it that's like almost this like badge of honor idea that like I took on this responsibility. And so in order for me to be a true professional at this, I need to take on what I signed up for without complaining or showing that it bothers me, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um. The other piece that I wanted to bring up is that um, they also avoided each other. So they either would like if someone was showing emotion, they would like detach. So they would just like 
there was a general culture of detachment that people like really didn't get below the surface with each other, but they would try to like encourage people, like if they were starting to show emotions, like it's okay, you're fine. And like walk away, you know, like this like <laughs> detachment from the fact that the emotion was occurring. Um, wow. They also would like um, deflect. So like um, avoid looking at distressing materials. So like if they had particularly distressing stuff, they would, not mention they would call things like the incident or the circumstances like that they were trying to like sort of sugarcoat the things that were going on um and then also that they would like suppress information so like ignoring people or silencing people um uh so they were basically like trying to if something emotional came up not only was the culture sort of supportive of distancing but when things did come up there was sort of this interpersonal reaction of like, oh, that's not appropriate. Yeah, so that, I mean, that probably just makes it worse. That just continues to create the spiral effect and you're not getting, I mean, we talk about the positive side of this, right? We talk about support from coworkers and peers and leaders and how important that is to help you manage through the day and deal with stress and impacting your wellness and all those things. And they're like literally doing the opposite of yeah. all the things we always talk about. yeah. Yeah, so so basically all of this bad stuff uh, he found led to employees reporting that they felt emotionally isolated, like disconnected from other people, which is not surprising, and really emotionally exhausted. So mm. what they thought was making them less emotionally exhausted, like I'm not engaging with emotions, actually created a lot of emotional exhaustion in employees. Like right. in individual interviews, they were saying like, I feel more exhausted that I can't express this. Um and I, I know that, like, avoiding it is making me more burnout and more tired because I just haven't dealt anything. Um, I haven't I haven't dealt with any of my own emotions. I've been pushing them off. And that's, I know, not healthy. That's not good for me. I feel isolated. I feel exhausted. Um, so clearly it wasn't a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he counters this with what he calls momentary compassion, which was that every now and again, he saw these like bright spots that would emerge that he then used as a way of showing them how things could be different. So um, in these bright spots of momentary compassion, he saw when agency members sort of broke with the norms and instead of ignoring it, decided to notice or empathize with people or try to alleviate like the suffering of their coworkers. And when that happened, it seemed to that breaking of the norm, breaking through that fabric of what they had um, put in place as what the usual was, seemed to provide this real like relief and release for people that appeared very positive for the group. Um, and people reported feeling positively after they experienced these breaks in momentary compassion. Um, so it happened more frequently when like somebody was working with a coworker that they were like personally friends with, or when someone was identified with another person or identified with the case very strongly, or um, when they had some sort of like principal reason that they thought that they needed to step in, like this is just so bad on a principal level, like you would be a heartless person not to step in under these circumstances. Um, but when he saw that happening, that sort of created a rift in the fabric and it shifted things and deepened relationships between people People remember those rifts in those relationships and they enable people to feel much more emotionally connected 
rather than isolated. So um, they say things like, uh, before I felt alone, but when that happened, I realized I wasn't alone. The others have always been right there and I didn't feel by myself so much. Um, I wasn't so alone with how sad I was. It was a release um, that to know that someone wouldn't just let me have to be alone with how scared I was. Um, so these moments where people broke with the norms and provided support for each other actually um, alleviated that emotional exhaustion and allowed people to um, sort of relieve some of that burnout that they were feeling. So it sounds like kind of everything that we've been hinting at as we've been talking is that the original cultural approach that they were taking is not the most healthy, most beneficial. And that when they did do the types of things that we would normally recommend, it seemed to be better. And it, this actually, one of the comments you made earlier really did align with emotional labor in the sense that, you know, hiding your emotions. Like if you're, when we talked about emotional labor, you know, we, um, if you want to go back to previous episodes with uh, Dr. Alicia Grandy is one of the areas where we talked about this. Um, but really what you're doing when you're doing emotional labor is you're somehow either having to project an emotion or hide an emotion that and it's part of your job. And they've created that as part of the job unnecessarily. And so then now everyone feels like they have to hide their emotions. And that's really hard when sometimes you just need to break down. But then when they do break down, it's a good thing. So it's kind of like a weird, yeah, it's a weird dynamic. So did they, um, from everything here, did they talk at all about like what they learned and did they adapt or change anything? So they didn't, he didn't talk about what they learned or how they adapted because he wasn't doing like any kind of intervention, but was just like observing. But what the takeaway, I think the main takeaway is that the common sense model, I think in a lot of these organizations where people are, ongoingly experiencing distress is I need to protect myself by not experiencing these emotions. Like I need to protect myself by becoming sort of like a brick wall and all the things around me are sort of bouncing off or I would, I would imagine them bouncing off. And if I see someone else who's not able to do that, I, if I get sucked into that person's emotions, it'll be completely untenable for me. Like I think the fear is that people are going to get sucked into their jobs and just be like crying all day, upset all day, et cetera. And what's actually happening is in that process is that you're still taking on all those emotions. They're still sitting inside of you, but you are not coping with them appropriately. And you're, and people feel like so unsupported. And so there are these in your mind, you think that you can create this barrier between yourself and the emotional experiences but what's really happening right. is you you are it's impossible to do that. So you are actually absorbing those personal experience, those experiences emotionally and you're getting burnt out and more exhausted because you're thinking that you can operate in a way that you that you're not absorbing them. But that's impossible. So I think the takeaway right. is like if you're in a job like this, especially during this period of time where things are so heightened in terms of stress you need to take time to show that compassion. You can't just be task focused all the time. And it's not a sign of weakness to show that support for others or to, to recognize that you're having these really complicated emotions. That actually helps you to do a better job, to stay in the job longer and to build those relationships that you need to get through hard times, as opposed to sort of what I think is like a commonplace misconception that the more you can uh, not react, the better a professional you are actually the more you can give credence to and learn how to cope with those emotions and show support to others, the better things will be. Yeah, 
I mean, that makes a lot of sense from everything that we've seen in the literature and the research, and it's just a very extreme example. Um, You know, we know that being supportive of others, being able to be authentic, be yourself, express yourself, those things are all really important for reducing burnout and exhaustion and stress and being more effective at work. So really, if... I mean, it seems like people need training in these types of professions where it's super distressing on how to do that effectively and how to work through their emotions so that they can see those benefits and help each other, support each other, um, and understand that it's not going to be what's bogging you down. What's holding you back is actually the fact that you're running away and trying to hide from emotions that you're still feeling, even if you're not, if you're trying to choose not to. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way of saying it. And I, you know, I think it's relevant. The reason it stood out to me is because, like I mentioned, I've been hearing some of this with the um, hospital workers that I've been talking to that, like, you feel like you need to, like, put on this brave face and envision, like, yourself, like, all this stuff's happening around you and you're this, like, warrior that has no emotions that's, like, coming in to save the day and your own emotions don't matter. And actually, that makes you worse off in the long term. So it's... you can still be brave and have emotions and recognize those emotions. So I think that's kind of the main takeaway. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really interesting. And, um, you know, personally here, I'm just sitting here thinking like, what, why did we start these things? Like, why do people, humans try to avoid their emotions so much? Like this is one setting, but I feel like we do it a lot. And hopefully, hopefully somebody listening can take this and think, Oh, okay. Like, I can address my emotions head on and figure out ways to handle it and cope with it. And, you know, obviously they're very extreme. You get a mental health professional to help you. Um, It's okay to have these negative emotions and have negative reactions to life and everything around you. It's just figuring out the best way to manage it and cope with it. And then moving past it and supporting others and, you know, acknowledging what's going on within your own brain and not trying to ignore it because you won't actually be ignoring it totally I completely agree I think that's very well said (laughs) well thank you so much for sharing this really appreciate it even though it was kind of sad and I feel a little sad I'm acknowledging that I feel a little sad yeah and I know I have your support so (laughs) you do (laughs) (laughs) so I'll be fine (laughs) awesome well thank you for listening and uh I'm glad that we were able to hopefully provide some information that's relevant to people right now. Yes. So we'd love to hear from you too. If you have any comments, feedback, or thoughts about this, you can email us at contact at workerbeing.com. You can find us on our website, workerbeing.com. You can connect with us on social, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at workerbeing. And final plug, we launched a class on managing stress in uncertain times. Pretty relevant to this article, actually. Um, So if you are interested at all, you can go to our website and click on the courses button and it'll take you straight there. So it's a free class. So go and enjoy. Thanks for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabara and Katina Sawyer and produced by Allie Johnson. Thank you.